and welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. We're still coming to you remotely and now trying very hard not to melt in this heat wave. I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health, and joining me today is the fabulous editorial team. We have Hannah Crouch, Digital Health's Editor. Hi, everyone. And John Hoeksner, our Editor-in-Chief. Howdy. And it's Actually, a slightly special podcast for us today, as it is our first birthday. Uh, so our very first ever podcast was published a year ago, uh, just at the end of July, um, which actually means our birthday was a few weeks ago, but I postponed it for a slightly more important podcast, uh, which is the Shuri Network. So we've done quite a lot over the last year. Uh, personally, I'm quite proud of how far we've come. Um, I think we started off publishing monthly, and then in January, we decided to go fortnightly, which... At the time, I was like, this is fine. I've got all of the time for it. And then um, a little pandemic hit and <laughs> took up a lot of the time and resources we have. So it's been quite stressful to maintain it, but it's also been very fun. We've had some really, really interesting guests um, and had some like, really interesting discussions uh, on things like inclusion. Um, we've spoken to Matthew Gould about you know, where he sees the future of tech in the NHS going and what NHSX is planning to do. I imagine a few things have changed for him since we discussed that in February. Um, and we've, you know, we've spoken to a lot of other people who have got really interesting solutions that will change the way the NHS works, uh, ease pressure on services, uh, especially coming out of coronavirus when we've had a huge backlog of services that haven't really been operating the way they normally would. Um, so yeah, I'm quite, I think we've done quite well in the last year. Do you guys have a favorite episode? Um, I think I've got a few couple. I think that my favorites, um, ones that kind of stick out for me like you said the inclusion so ones that we did well ones that you've done sorry with the Shuri network um obviously it's good to be we've be, been able to give them a platform to speak about you know the topics that they want to discuss but then also having an all female panel at rewired this year i thought was really good um yeah, and having on the likes of yeah having like um natasha phillips on there who's obviously now the new cnio but having someone of her sort of you know the sort of the background and the the re reputation that I saw the word I was looking for um on it I think was really good and there was a lot of good discussion on there and then I think most recently um the things that we've done on the contract tracing app especially the U-turn yeah. discussions that we've had around that because I think it's changed I think I started off when we started doing the news team ones quite positive about the contact tracing app I tried to be optimistic and I tried to to be on the side of NHSX and you know be optimistic that it was going to happen but unfortunately I was proven wrong and obviously they did the U-turn which we then did the did the, the, the news team debrief on so yeah I'm really pleased with how it's gone and it's how it's taken off and I just hope that everyone's been enjoying listening to them. Yeah the news team ones have always been quite fun as well haven't they we do have yeah. we do have a bit of a laugh doing these they're the hardest ones to edit because we go off on tangents and <laughs> have a joke and then we've missed the topic for a while but they're always very fun. How about and, you, John? And providing, well, obviously anyone <laughs> involving um, having to provide tech support to me is always great fun. Like this one has um, started again today. Um, I actually, congratulations, Andrew, because um, it's come a long way in the space of a year and we had lots of questions. We began, said, let's give it a go. You've, you've done brilliantly with it and um, really kind of um, put your stamp on it. Um, so, you know, very, very well done. Thank you. Might um, edit that out. Sounds a bit, <laughs> sounds braggy, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a bit. But yeah, I keep it. Um, I, I miss the ones which are in person. So we did some yeah. where we did them recording um, in what was the digital health um, office um, in Vauxhall. Um, 
And we did a few where we brought in some um, folks from interesting startups, folks from the NHS. And I thought that was going to be a really nice formula that we would include as part of the mix. But hey, circumstances haven't allowed it. Um, you know, COVID-19 has obviously kind of um, featured kind of very heavily. Um, and it's had um, its impact on us as a company. We've um, given up our office space for the time being, uh, which means that since um, March of this year, um, these have all been done using Zoom and Zencaster. Um, and like everyone else, we've had to adapt. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, well done, but wow, what a year it's been. And surprise, surprise, <laughs> COVID-19 has um, featured kind of um, a lot. Um, but I do like the ones which are in person. And I think the ones you've done, particularly with um, some of the kind of network um, superstars like the Shuri Network um, have been you know, well worth going back and listening to again. Yeah, I do miss being in person. It's just much easier, um, you know, to, to work out who's going to speak next and, you know, things like that. But actually, silver lining of having to go uh, virtual, it was something I was looking at doing anyway, because recording in person means that I either had to travel to wherever they were or they had to travel to me. Um, and it was logistically, that's quite hard when I want to include people from all over the country. So actually, it's forced me to do something that I was already looking at doing very quickly. So now we know we can include everyone from everywhere, which is great. Maybe we'll get some international guests one day. Maybe. <laughs> um, I suppose we should also probably talk about some news rather than bragging about how great we are. Um, <laughs> so as our regular listeners will know, we normally focus on a few of the major stories of the month in our news team debriefs. But as John has mentioned, coronavirus has kind of taken over that and been our major topic of focus. One of the biggest themes in our stories at the moment is digital first primary care. The pandemic has forced us all to go digital and now we're looking at whether or not those services will remain in the future. Royal College of GPs figures uh, show that before the pandemic, more than 70% of consultations in England were carried out face to face. But within weeks of coronavirus hitting us, that dropped to 23%. So that's a huge increase in the use of digital services. At a Royal College of Physicians event last week, uh, Matt Hancock said that he wanted to see all GP appointments done through teleconsultations unless there's a compelling reason not to. I've just realised I've done air quotes on a podcast, so no one knows that's going to happen. <laughs> um, so that means, that, you know, using online services and telephone services first before actually going in for a face-to-face -face appointment. Uh, but the Royal College of GPs was really quick to warn that a total remote service just won't work for everyone. Uh, they have recognised the need to use technology, but also warned there are some things that can't be done remotely. So that does leave us wondering what primary care is going to look like in the future. Personally, I think it's not going to go back entirely to the way it was before because we've seen how well digital has worked during the pandemic. But I also don't think we're at a point where we can be entirely digital either. Um, so, John, what do you think on this one? Um, well, I think the shift to kind of remote, remote care, uh, particularly in primary care, was um, dramatic, happened very, very kind of quickly. And then indeed it had to happen. Um, and um, you know that that's been covered in depth, but the actual bulk of the kind of heavy lifting there um, has been the telephone. You know, it's pretty humble. Um, it does its job. It's um, familiar. Um, there's been you know a, a big increase in video um, consults, sure, but starting from a tiny number, um, and you know the vast proportion um, of these um, are the telephone. So if, if the um, official message is as it is, um, that um, this should be the default way of accessing primary care, um, then, um, then it, it begs all kinds of questions. Um, particularly, 
how are we going to sustain a model and should we sustain a model of primary care which is based on trying to get um, people into GP practices early in the morning with all kinds of kind of gatekeeping to make that kind of um, difficult um, and, and the message from Secretary of State is not um, we um, if we're going through a model which is about kind of um, you know being able to kind of access um, by telephone and video then service providers like Babylon, Ada, and a whole bunch of kind of others in, in that kind of segment um, must think it's all their Christmas has come early. It's, um, it's um, you know, exactly the kind of service that you could um, outsource at scale. It would fundamentally change the model of um, primary care. Um, as we saw early on um, with Babylon in London, um, massively destabilize um, financial flows and the, the viability of chunks of the NHS. Um, but if that's where we're going, then the current model of primary care that we have uh, based around GP practices um, is not going to work. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think the days of going in for every appointment and like queuing to get an appointment. And, you know, I, I do think those are kind of behind us because we've just, we've shown that we can do it a better way. And I think there was, I think there was an issue with, you know, patients maybe not being willing to use digital services because they are new and obviously now having to have used them, um, there's a bit more confidence behind, you know, using these services and knowing that you can get the same help and the same care that you need without necessarily having to see a GP face to face. Um, like for example, I've always used an app to book my appointments uh, through my GP because it offers an app for me and I do all of my repeat prescriptions on there. But my housemates, for example, didn't actually know they could do that until we were forced into this pandemic. And then um, they've been using it ever since because they were like, well, this is just so much easier. Why would I ever, why would I ever call to go for an appointment to repeat this prescription when I can just get it renewed and delivered straight to my pharmacy? So there's, yeah, there's, I think there's changes like that. I am slightly skeptical of it being entirely digital though, purely because there are people that it just doesn't work for. Um, like, and I think this goes back to what the Royal College of GPs was saying is that a totally remote service isn't necessarily the right way forward because there are things you can't do remotely, like blood pressure checks, you know, vaccinations, blood tests, um, you know, anything that basically requires a physical examination. I yeah. think we're still going to have to go in. Um, but what I took from what Matt Hancock was saying is that he wants it to be more of calling and texting first to determine if you need to go in rather than just going in because that's what you're used to doing. Um, and I do think that will be what happens um, in the future. Just don't know how, well, I, how we maintain it without I, slipping back a bit. I mean, I think the future's already arrived to kind of, you know, borrow from um, the famous phrase from William Gibson. Um, you know, the future is already here. It's just a bit messy and uneven um, in its distribution. So, you know, the long-term plan had some like 30% of GP appointments within five years being done. Boom, we've completely overshot that as a result of kind of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, that, that only takes you so far. That, that's beginning down the kind of um, journey of shift to kind of um, digital. I mean, I think what, what's largely missing um, in, in the digital responses in, in primary care so far is we've seen very little at-scale shift to... Um, remote monitoring of patients, remote um, management of, of patients with long-term conditions. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the bit that needs focus. That's the bit we need to get to. You know, people getting a phone call from their GP 
great, okay, but it's just the beginning. It's not going to make a huge Do you think difference. We're there yet with remote monitoring, though, because the tech for that is still very new. Um, it's not like you know, not a lot of people have used it before. I think people might be nervous, like if they're being asked to take their own blood pressure or anything like that. Also, that requires. I mean, I don't know the figures, but I'm assuming it requires quite a lot of investment from the NHS. Um, do you think we're at a point yet where we can start remote monitoring um, for most conditions? I think, I think we've kind of, um, you know, I've been at this kind of longer enough, um, Andrea, where, you know, you used to kind of like get some company breathlessly telling you about um, a telehealth trial they've done. And it turned out it was a dozen people over two years in Devon or something um, <laughs> for people with asthma. And you go, well, that's interesting, but you know, that's not really going to make much of a dent in kind of, um, in kind of um, health service um, provision. I, I think telehealth has, has gone long past that. So, you know, th there are plenty of different bits of the country which are using bits of remote monitoring or long-term care, but it hasn't, it hasn't then leapt up that next level where it becomes close to being the norm. You know? I think the technology is pretty mature. Yeah, it's improving all the time. But the issues are far more around um, funding it, bodies that are actually kind of um, got a remit to buy it. So that might be ICS, are the obvious ones, um, I think, in the, in the new kind of landscape. Um, and just people being a bit, you know, conservative with a small C, resistant to change. But I think the regulatory and funding issues are much bigger than the technology. I mean, I think there's, there's plenty of proof that it works. The point I'm making is that in, in the current crisis we've had, the technology shift has been relatively easy to, to telephones primarily and some you know, um, triage to back it up. What we haven't seen is that more fundamental kind of um, shift um, to putting more of the care into the patient's hands and, and making the patient at home um, the location for much of that care. Clearly, clearly, there's a lot of people that want to see that happen. Um, I think it's just thus far, COVID-19 hasn't been the thing that spurred that. I think for me, I think I... I found Hancock's wording quite strange, saying a compelling reason to go to the GP surgery, because I think that's quite an odd way to put it. Because for me, I think you can triage and you can kind of determine whether people need to go into the surgery if they have to. But so for other sort of things that you can maybe easily do over the phone or over by consultation, do it. And then you free up the space in the GP surgery for those, you know, maybe that are older and, and don't want to use the technology and want to see their GP. The, the word people like to use digital front door that kind of points you in the right direction and, and to the right care that you need easily. But it was quite funny this week. I, my sister had to do a, a video, uh, not a video, a telephone conversation with her GP. And I thought she'd be all for it, but she was, she didn't want to do it and she didn't like it. And she had to send a picture I think it's from my nephew and she didn't like it. And my sister's not old, you know, she's mid thirties. So I, I, I guess sometimes it's not always just to say, you know, about digital inclusion and that it's necessarily the older people that don't want to use technology. It might be someone that's a bit older and doesn't feel that comfortable about sending pictures and things like that. You know, there's, there's a whole load of issues with kind of um, online and sort of telephone you have to kind of say maybe some intimate information over the phone I was sure. listening to a debate um, I think it was on, on television and it was about if someone's in a, a domestic abuse victim and they're like oh I maybe going to the GP is them kind of saying um, I need some help and you know if they can do it over the telephone would they feel comfortable enough to to say it so I think there's it's not a kind of one-size-fits-all there's not kind of, we either go to complete digital or not. 
I completely agree with you, Hannah, that, you know, um, that I don't think even the biggest kind of advocates of kind of, you know, digital primary care services are going to say it's going to replace um, everything. But I think, you know, it, it, it's shifting that balance. And um, I mean, and, and as digital becomes the front door, it's your, your, your default kind of um, access point. Um, I think it's very difficult not to kind of see how that does kind of um, entrench um, existing kind of um, exclusion because, um, you know, there's plenty of um, sort of um, people out there that don't have access to a physical GP um, or certainly not kind of um, easily. Um, and, um, you know, I think equity does become a really big issue. Um, you know, the, the kind of arguments about old people, older people kind of um, being less willing to use digital. I mean, I think that's to be fairly well rehearsed. That age is not necessarily the barrier, um, although I think we can all kind of um, name relatives who um, probably aren't going to kind of leap onto kind of online GP services. Yeah? But, but I think poverty and lack of access to broadband, um, lack of access to um, you know, digital devices, computers, laptops, et cetera, is a very real issue. Um, and um, just because it works for many, uh, particularly from you know, metropolitan areas, um, doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. Yeah, I was just about to say that and actually probably timed quite well because my internet dropped out for a bit and you probably all heard me running downstairs to fix it because I um, did not turn myself on mute. So <laughs> I'm very sorry if anyone heard me frantically unpl unplugging my laptop and running down some stairs. <laughs> but that does lead me to the question of whether or not we have the tech to support it because I think if you're going to spend 10 minutes trying to set up a decent connection and explain to a patient how it works and doing all of that before you can do the consultation, is that not just slowing us down a little bit more when actually it might be quicker to just have that consultation in person and then the patient can, you know, make their way home afterwards. Cause I think I don't know, we're, in, we're in London, we have decent connectivity sometimes. Um, and you know, it would work for us, but what about those remote areas where they don't necessarily have the broadband? Um, I, I think there probably needs to be a bit more investment in that. And we haven't seen a lot coming out in, uh, in terms of whether they will be investing in, connectivity for GP surgeries and um, maybe that's something that's coming in the next couple of months I don't know um, and I, I think the, the other thing worth kind of um, worth kind of stressing is that you know um, that that consultation between a patient um, and a GP or practice nurse um, you know that that is a, a, a kind of moment in time where all kinds of information can be discovered or stories told that that um, don't necessarily lend themselves to um, you know, digital channels, um, bit text messages or phone or, or video. And um, you know, particularly identifying at-risk patients um, or people who are you know, vulnerable for one reason or another. Um, you know, the, the, the need for the GP consultation is not gonna go away, but one suspects that if a greater emphasis is going on to um, digital first, for many people, um, over time, getting access to that kind of in-person consultation um, may become more difficult. Here's an interesting question as well. This is what I thought of just in them. Um, we're obviously very pro-tech at digital health because we know, we know how useful it is and we know how important digital services will be in the future. Do you think that means that maybe we overlook some of the constraints that might be around digital services before, and we sort of get overexcited and think, you know, this is the way forward before it actually is before we're actually at a place where the health service can move forward like that. I think that's probably one for John, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, God, we're terrible monomaniacs. Yeah, we're kind of like you know we're, we're forever kind of boosting digital health. There's more to the world than digital health. There you go. I've said it. it it's, even I, I know I was away on a holiday. It's, I had a moment of a. It's recorded. Yeah? We've got it. <laughs> I'll play this back sometime. Um, but I mean, I think part of our job about kind of writing about this, about putting events on and organizing kind of networks around this um, is, is to champion the cause of it. And, um, and, but you do no favor, I think, um, by even the most ardent advocates of digital health by thinking it's the, it's the only um, answer to every problem. Um, I think, you know, digital is, is a very useful set of tools, but has to be used in conjunction with, um, you know, very, um, very much kind of physical um, services as well. Um, the, and I think that what it points to is a really interesting question, Andrea, which is, um, you know, we've written about it, um, we, we've kind of um, reported a lot on it, but has the NHS really seen um, a fundamental digital transformation um, as a result of COVID-19? And I think actually, it's patchier and perhaps a bit thinner in places than, than um, some champions, including us on occasion, um, have, have led people to, to believe. Um, and I think primary care is part of that. So that, that, that shift to, um, to kind of um, remote services, I think it's the concept of the shift less than the technology, which has been the, the important part of it. It's that experience people have lived of you, you have a first point of contact on the phone um, that, that is more important than how, how deep and how digital the, um, the kind of consultation um, has been. But you know, as we were saying, most of it's been phone. Um, we've seen use of um, things like attend anywhere. Attend anywhere, that's probably going to be reset to something which is you know, much more kind of um, familiar um, pattern of service provision um, as things go forward. Um, we've seen the rollout of teams at scale. I think that's welcome, but you know, that would have happened slightly more slowly or something very similar. Um, so I think there's been an acceleration, but is it qualitatively different to what we would have seen before? Um, I think it's an interesting question. And, and as, as the months have passed, um, I think, I think the easy stuff has happened pretty quickly, but the tough stuff remains tough. Yeah, it's kind of shown us that we can do it, um, but maybe when we have the option to maybe just rethink um, how we do it, because obviously we just did everything so quickly. But as you said, we're not using anything new. This technology has been around for ages um, and maybe there's just been some barriers in, in terms of actually getting it into the NHS, um, which is something I think Hancock spoke about in his speech at the Royal College of Physicians. Um, sort of mentioned the bureaucracy around adopting digital solutions and mentioned that there needs to be some work done in reducing that so it is quicker to to get these solutions into the NHS. Obviously, it's there for a reason. Um, you know, it's people's lives. You can't just adopt stuff and see if it works and, you know, think about it later. You have to be really careful. Um, but it does make you question whether or not those barriers are, like, if they need to be in place uh, or whether or not we can adopt things a little bit quicker. Um, yeah, I mean, just just to answer, uh, you know, um, argue against myself, we, we've just run a very kind of um, successful virtual summer school dedicated to digital response to COVID-19. And there were many, many examples of how people have innovated kind of locally. And that, I mean, my personal kind of uh, view is that it's the accumulation of all those incremental kind of um, changes and innovations 
they're tips things. It's no one thing that sort of um, makes a huge difference. Um, you know, it, it's all those local benefits kind of um, adding up. Yeah, so I've spent some time this week reading through a King's, King's Farm report, which looked into four case studies, um, which includes Patients Know Best and amongst some others, um, both in the UK and in the Nordic countries. And the, the report, which was commissioned by the Academic Health Science Networks, uh, wanted to reflect on how, how, how best really to um, upscale innovation in the health service and, you know, the impact it can have. But obviously, um, this was done before the pandemic hit, and they've kind of they've reflected on on the pandemic as well as kind of everything is now. Kind of the pandemic's kind of impacted everything. But one question they do raise is that when the dust settles, there is going to be a need of reflection and a period of reflection um, on the lessons from this kind of period that we've just got all gone through, and the nature of the innovation um, in the NHS and how much of kind of these established narratives and barriers that we sort of perceive and what we think are barriers, how much actually are barriers and are they credible? And so they talk about things like, are, can, are clinicians generally adverse to adopting innovation? And was it just the fact that it was under extreme circumstances that they were able to rapidly do it? But I really do think there needs to be a period of reflection and kind of review after everything does finish or settle, so to speak. So I think that's something that I kind of would like to see done. Yeah, I agree. I would like to think that we look back on this and realise that maybe we can implement things a little bit faster um, mm. and that maybe like the 400th test of the system doesn't need to happen because 399 is enough. I'm sure it's not that many. That's just me exaggerating. Um, but it, uh, yeah, like it would be nice to just see things move along a bit quicker because something that I've learned a lot of in the last sort of year and a half that I've been with digital health, especially uh, on the podcast when I've been speaking to startups and SMEs, is it's not necessarily that their technology doesn't work. It's actually getting their foot in the door and convincing the NHS that this technology is needed. And then the, the whole process of from start to like, finish where you you know you're rolling it out across hospitals or um gp surgeries is actually quite lengthy and quite stressful and there's a lot of hoops to jump through and i don't necessarily know if all of them need to be there i mean i'm not an expert on that so maybe they do but it would be nice if we could jump through them a bit quicker so that yeah you know these ideas that they have which some of them are really incredible and they will transform the way we work as a health service it would be nice to see them um jumping forward yeah but i think it would be it will be really really interesting to see what the impact of introducing technology which you know mainly in sort of in primary care has had and you know what will be the impact be what will be the effect you know things like governance and i think that will be i think a really good key starting point for where we go from here and using it as kind of a learning lesson of you know this is what's happened and you know not everything's going to have been plain sailing, not everything would have worked, you know, things have been changed. And I think as a starting block for, for how things are now rolled out in the future, I think it's probably really needed. So I would like them to see, I would like the NHS to do that, but I'm not head of the NHS, unfortunately. <laughs> not yet. You're climbing Nor there. am I qualified. <laughs> I wrote Hannah for head of the NHS. <laughs> I don't think it's even head of the NHS. <laughs> it's absolutely not the name title. of the job. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you've got promoted in this podcast. It's been nice. <laughs> what a, what a one-year celebration that's been. <laughs> um, so I actually just wanted to wrap it up by asking you, John, because you're the, you're the biggest expert here. Um, I wanted to ask, where do you think 
what is your ideal of you know primary care in the future where do you want it to go where do you think we're going so i i don't have an ideal um for primary care in the future i think that's, that's the first thing yeah well, i think what it needs to... head of the nhs job right <laughs> not why well, i haven't got hannah's job but, um <laughs> I think what it needs though is flexibility. Um, it's fast changing, um, it's rapidly evolving. Even before COVID-19, you have primary care networks, you had to move to integrated care systems. It's seen huge change um, you know, in how people are in, employed within that sector, um, from you know, independent contractors to largely salaried in the case of kind of um, GPs. But I think, I think the types of technologies we've been talking about are more rapid. Um, so I think, I think flexibility, um, it needs to, to you know, pull off that most difficult of tricks of maintaining the best of the current with, um, with adopting the best of what, what's coming um, as well. Um, and yet it's gonna do this in a world, I think, which is gonna feel um, uncertain. Um, it's gonna feel there are all kinds of um, threats where funding's gonna be um, an issue. Um, but I, I do think that you know, patient, patients once they try these things, and, and, and clinicians once they try these things, um, yeah. you know, th there's no aversion to using tech. I, I think you know, um, there can be a fear factor of the unknown uh, first of all, but people adapt remarkably well. Um, so I think lots more kind of um, tech. I think I think particularly the types of areas that I, I think are very interesting is I think clinical decision support really embedded within the workflow to a much greater extent um, than we have at the moment, where you start to see some of that kind of um, promise of AI and machine learning as, um, as decision-making aids, as um, additional knowledge sources, which, which kind of, um, you know, really kind of support kind of um, work. Um, and I think some of the things where voice begins to kind of replace the need to rattle away at a keyboard um, and actually kind of code notes um, and, the clinician can focus on their interaction with the patient and not recording it um, in, in note form. Um, I think that th those are things which, the more we see that kind of blended into, um, into kind of um, the interaction, the better. I also think that we're gonna see a lot, lot more on, the, on that sort of remote kind of um, monitoring and um, support. A lot of that will probably be again by telephone. You know, how are you feeling today? Have you taken your, your kind of medicines? Um, you know, it, it is gonna be, relatively low tech it's not all going to be kind of wearable star Wars, star trek stuff yeah? um so there you go you, i said i had no idea but i got a few thoughts there. you had some thoughts there that was good yeah. um it has been an interesting year for sure hasn't it i think i don't think any of us saw this coming um but i'm actually quite glad that i'm working in in this job because it's been really fascinating watching it all um well, i think we've yeah I, I, we've, <laughs> we've had a lot of news but it's been really fun <clears throat> I mean, I think we're still at a really early stage of this. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the idea that kind of, you know, we're coming to the end of, of first wave is, is, um, is not the right way to think about this. Yeah? And I strongly suspect we come up the second anniversary of the podcast. We would have spent another year writing about um, technology and COVID-19. Oh, um, <laughs> because it's, good, it, it's something we're all going to have to kind of learn yeah. to live alongside. Yeah? Mm -hmm. No, I agree. It is going to be. It's, there's not an end, I don't think. Like it's going to be something that we have to continue learning from um, and continue working alongside, I guess, as you say. Um, so not really how I wanted to spend our first birthday celebrations for the podcast. I had grand plans of prosecco and cake, and we were just—I was just going to pop the prosecco and have a few glasses, and we were going to have a gossip column start, I think. But yeah, the, <laughs> that's not how it's happened. 
the cake is definitely sorely missed. Yeah, that doesn't translate to online no, very well. No, it doesn't. I, well, John has promised us a bottle of Moe, so I am holding you to this. And if I don't get the bottle of Moe at some point, then I don't know, I'll go on strike. We'll have an editorial team strike. <laughs> It's coming. Well, you know, we're going to have to replace Hannah now. She's off to go run the NHS. Yeah, yeah well, we've promoted <laughs> Hannah, so we need a new editor now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so what an interesting year it's been. I can't believe that, um, I just can't believe where we're at now compared to where we were a year ago. I certainly didn't think that I would be producing a podcast in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but yeah, I think it's also been very interesting and we've had some really excellent guests and I hope that that continues. Um, we get a lot more audience participation now as well, which is great because it shows that people are listening and want to share their ideas with us. So that's always helpful. Also makes my job a lot easier. So please send in your ideas if you've got them because sometimes I struggle to come up with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's also been fun having you guys on the podcast as of January, I think it started. So I think we've all had a good time. Tech issues aside, um, mm. my internet not occasionally playing ball immediately falling down some stairs while recording today so <laughs> I think we've had some fun so thank you and for all of our listeners at home uh, also don't forget that we publish fortnightly on Spotify Apple Podcasts and iTunes uh, we also publish a story alongside us on our, our digital health news page uh, if you do have any suggestions for a podcast please do email me at a downey that's d-o-w-n-e-y at digitalhealth.net I'm always open for ideas um, yeah, so that's the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining in and thank you for joining us, John and Hannah. Try not to melt. It's <laughs> boiling hot on my end and I feel like I need a cold shower at the moment. So hopefully you've um, got through the heat wave next time I see you. Bye.